0: Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for really what you've done to make it available to us so that we could actually study it, so that we could know more about you, know more about what we ought to do in light of eternity as we're trying to live our lives in a way that's going to make an eternal impact. We ask that you help us to truly trust you moment by moment as we're going through that. And as we're going into this study, as always, I ask that you give us discernment. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're back in the study of the rapture of the church. Um, Having spent gobs and gobs of time teaching through the doctrine of imminency as it pertains to the rapture of the church, having interacted with all of the objections that we felt were sustainable um, to that particular doctrine, we now get into the next part of the series which we've been working on for a few weeks now which is where we interact with all of the alternative perspectives on the rapture. Now, part of the reason that we're doing this and I've mentioned this in times past, I'm going to emphasize it a little bit more today is that what some people in modern evangelical Christianity would have you believe is that because you have these other viewpoints, well nobody can ever nobody can know for sure. I mean, it's it is what it is. People have different opinions. It's all up in the air. There's nothing that's specific. It's not conspicuous. They, they give all of these reasons to try to justify all of the questions they still have about their eschatological position. Um, because as we've been interacting with, not a single one of the ones we've looked in post-tribulationalism, which I would actually argue is not, and this is a little bit controversial, is not the primary doctrine of the historical church. Um, I think most of those guys were pre-wrath, which, again, is kind of a catch-22, because if you're mid-trib, pre-wrath, or pre-trib, or partial, then you are also pre-wrath, right? So, again, it's, it's quite different, but what they are expecting, though, is a rapture. <clears throat> no matter what the position is, they are expecting that. The issue of post-tribulationalism, as we've been interacting with it, is that it doesn't differentiate between the second coming and the rapture. They believe that is two terms for the same event. Now, the reason we're looking at this is because it is entirely possible to intelligently interact with these positions to show where they don't hold water, to look for where the holes are. Um, I'm not saying that we know everything there is to know about the rapture. If I understand the doctrine of progressive illumination, I'm actually expecting our kids, should they pursue Christ, to know more about this doctrine than we do. If the Lord tarries that point, I'm hoping he doesn't. <clears throat> I'd like to know more than my kids. Um, I'm just kidding. That's, that's not why. But in any case, we always pray for the rapture. That is always something that we're hoping for because we know it moves us one step closer, ultimately, to the kingdom. And that should be what we're hoping for. We're hoping for that kingdom, for the eternal state that follows. So that being said, just keep in mind, as we're going through these positions, we're doing this not just to know more than everybody else. That's not our goal. Um, Having knowledge is useless if you don't know how to use it. It's useless to know things if you're not in a position to teach it. Because what is the Christian walk What's half the Christian walk? Half the Christian walk is understanding God, studying His Word, and having our minds conform to the image of His Son so that our actions follow that image, ultimately. That's part of the goal. So, that being said, that's part of the reason why we're studying this, is because there are a lot of people held back from maturity because they have certain viewpoints that are unbiblical. Because our goal is to conform our minds to the image of the Son through the entirety of God's Word, not just a few verses taken out of context. So when we're interacting with these viewpoints and we see certain problems, like in post-tribulationalism, where they, in a lot of cases, mold the church in Israel into one group and call it the people of God. Well, that hamper, or yeah, it's negatively affecting a lot of areas of theology, So as we're looking at it, just keep in mind, there are are a lot of reasons why we're looking into these things. It's not just because, I mean, it is interesting because you learn a lot about how other people interpret the Bible, which if you've ever talked with, um, I'll just say less mature believers, this is a problem that a lot of them have, is that some of the micro issues that ultimately culminate in these positions are... I mean, they're severely unbiblical. So some, I think it was, uh, oh, what's his name? I think it was Robbie Dean that actually said there are three types of believers. There is the, and this is specifically in regards to Romans uh, 14 and 15. There is the believer that is immature. So they're going to have convictions based upon things that they just think are the case you're going to have mature believers who have convictions on the basis of what Scripture says. And then you're going to have legalists who have convictions based upon culminating years of false conviction basis. So what a lot of these people are is that last group. But most of the people I've interacted with are from the first group. They're from the immature believers, which still gives them room to grow if we're in a position where we can help them. So anyway... I'll get off that, but I just I think that's kind of important as we're looking into this. That's part of the reason that I'm going into the detail that I am. So that being said, what are our initial comments on the post-trib rapture? I just want to go over this very quickly. First of all, they're primarily pre-millennial. I'm saying primarily because there are also post-millennial uh, post-tribulationalists, too, which would be obviously quite the opposite. We're... So most of them believe that there's going to be a future kingdom. Most of them actually still literally interpret the scriptures, which designate Israel as one of the primary groups of people in which the kingdom is centered around. Most of them do those things. Um, And they will commonly hold that distinction between the church and Israel. But even in the midst of that, they still blend the lines between them because in order to try to blend the in order to have the church and Israel simultaneously in the tribulational period, you also have to have the church and Israel simultaneously kind of being the same entity in, in some distinctions. So you're gonna have differences between every individual teacher of this particular position. They're not as clear-cut as we'd want them to be. Just like there are a lot of dispensationalists that are all across the board in terms of what they believe in a lot of these things especially with things like progressive dispensationalism. You're going to have inconsistency between people. Now, they're not going to say, hey, I'm a progressive dispensationalist. They're going to say, I'm a dispensationalist most of the time. And then they'll say progressive dispensationalist ideologies. So, again, you just have to be able to recognize those as they're saying them. Now, a lot of them, and by a lot, I mean every single one of them will, as I said, also combine the second coming with the rapture, saying it's the same event. Now, what have we actually done in this study so far, looking at post-tribulationalism? Well, we've looked at how they handle our main three verses. I would add two more to this, and we've been looking at those two, and we're going to be looking at them a little bit more today, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Matthew 24. How they handle those verses tell us everything we need to know about their position. I mean, they're going to have other philosophical arguments. They're going to have other... Um, gotcha questions or whatever, but how they handle the actual text of Scripture is the determination in which we base their legitimacy. That's where we base whether or not we think they're actually correct. Now that being said, having looked at those positions, we now went into the second section, which is where we think we interact with their main arguments for their position. Not just how they interpret the text of Scripture, but what are their main arguments arguments on the basis of that scripture that we looked at. So we looked at this first one last week where their initial premise is that it is possible for God to choose to protect his people from wrath within the tribulational period. We talked a bit uh, about this in relation to the parallel they draw to Torero Eck in Revelation chapter three. But we also look at these promises from the book of Isaiah. They try to combine these to try to make the argument that, well, Why are we assuming that God's wrath can't be happening at the same time that the church is on the earth? So that's kind of their point. Um, Again, it is an empty point because of the way that they choose to word it. Um, Because we don't technically disagree with that, but the Bible specifically says that we're not going to be present for the time of the wrath. Okay, the time of testing, which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Having looked at Revelation, we also know who those earth dwellers actually are. Now, the next point. And this is the one where we ended on last week, which is their argument that well, in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, we see a reference to the trump of God. We also see another reference to that. We also see a reference to the trumpet in Matthew 24 which gathers the elect. That sounds a lot like the rapture. So basic uh, observational interpretation. We're not going to read into anything. We see a trumpet here. We see a trumpet here. We see gathering here. We see gathering here. So this must be the same event. So we interacted with that last week. And we spent quite a bit of time looking into what trumpets actually did in the Bible because that should be the first step, right? Not just drawing comparisons and similarities on the basis of a single uh, similar concept. So that being said, what did we actually come to in terms of a solution on that? Well, we saw that in Numbers 10, you had essentially two trumpets. There were different configurations of that, but generally speaking, they were done to either draw a crowd, like to gather those in Israel for a purpose, or to disperse them, or to go to war. They had different trumpets for those reasons. And we see in Revelation chapter 11 that the seventh trumpet is only the last trumpet in a series. Well, if you actually look a little bit closer, and if you listen to some people in other viewpoints, which you're going to be looking at, all, a lot of people say the rapture happens in Revelation chapter 11. The reason they do this is because of the trumpet, because it's the last trumpet. And that's also where you find that they take, this te- they take our telescoping view of Revelation which is just the normative way of reading Revelation, if you read it in a literal sense. And they take that and they give us the recapitulation viewpoint. They have to do that because they need the seventh trumpet to be basically the pre-second coming move of God. Because they have to have that happen, because if the seventh trumpet is going to be what happens right before the second coming... Well, then, hey, this is the same thing as the second coming. It's the same event, just talking about it in different perspectives. So that's the reason they do that. Now, you'll find other people that don't take that position. They say, well, no, the seventh trumpet doesn't sound at the end. It happens in the middle of the trip. It happens three-quarters of the way through. So you're going to have different differences of opinion on that on the basis of this fact. But just kind of keep in mind, that's where they're going with it. Again, that doesn't prove anything. As we talked about last week, you could have 19 last trumpets because last pertains to the context in which the trumpet is sounded. It's not that God only has a certain amount of trumpets and there's only going to be one last, last trumpet. Seventh trumpet in the trumpet judgments is the last of seven trumpets. The last trumpet in Numbers 10 would have been the last trumpet Pertaining to the context in which they were blowing that trumpet. It doesn't necessarily mean that. And so when we talk about the trumpet that's going to be blown, which in our rapture passages in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, well, that last trumpet could just be the last trumpet in the church age, right? So it's not, it doesn't hurt us that there's more than one last trumpet because there are de facto, so many last trumpets throughout Scripture. And so, though I would say this is a compelling argument if you look at it without the context in which trumpets were used in the Bible, I I don't really think it holds water once you look at it under scrutiny. Um, That being said, I'm also not going to go to uh, Greek trumpet blowing and Roman trumpet blowing to try to figure out what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians. Now, I could look in history and find any example of a trumpet being blown that would fit whatever my preconceived notion of what I think the trumpet ought to do in Scripture does, but that's not our job. Our job is to literally interpret Scripture as it's written. We don't have the freedom to spiritualize it. We don't have the freedom to impute contexts from external contexts to try to give meaning to a text outside of its normative meaning. We talked about that as an invalid totality transfer. That's what uh, Robert Thomas refers to it as. Because you're taking the context outside of the context you're actually studying, you're taking the meaning from that other context, and you're imputing it into the context that you're actually in. Um, it's a good way of saying you're just, you're, you didn't like the meaning that was presented in Scripture, so you're bringing another one in. Right? We're not allowed to do that. So that being said, we now get to interact with our next argument. Now, to so- solidify that point, we looked at a few of the different arguments given by Thomas Ice and J. Dwight Pentecost. Where they made a really good point about the trumpets, and they went into even more detail than I did. So today, having spent 18 minutes uh, recapitulating last week, we now get to look at this next point. Now, their argument is that 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, hints at a post-tribulational return of Christ. Now, I've, the only reason we're looking at this argument is because I've seen several people make this argument. So, let's go ahead and turn there. Let's, let's humor this argument just for, just for fun. So now, just to give you their commentary, we will read... Verses 16 through 18. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Um, Douglas Moo says, The clue is found in the word used by Paul to describe the meeting between the saints who are alive and the Lord. And that this word, appendices, occurs in reference to the visit of dignitaries and generally implies that the delegation accompanies the dignitary back to the delegation's point of origin. This would imply that after the saints meet the Lord in the air, they then go with him back to the earth instead of going to heaven. Jesus returns and gathers his people to himself and brings them back to earth. Okay, well, let's, first of all, let's look at Matthew 28, verse 15, and Acts twenty-eight fifteen because those are the two verses within this book that they, they quote, okay? So let's start in Matthew 28. Very tail end of Matthew. It says in Matthew 28, verse 15, and they took the money and did as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews, and is to this day. It says in Acts 28:15, that's where I want you to turn next. 28:15 We'll start at verse 11. It says as Paul's arriving to Rome at the end of 3 months we set sail to an Alexandrian ship which had been wintered at the island which had le- which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put it in Syracuse we stayed there for 3 days. It's the Syracuse, that's not even close. Anyway, so from there we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up and on the second day we came to, I can't even pronounce any of these, but in any case, butchering the point, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome and the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Apeas and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage." So what is the point that they're trying to make by quoting these verses? The main point that they're trying to shoot for is that, well, in these occurrences, you have somebody coming out to meet somebody and then presumably going back to the point of origin. So when we see the same word in 1 Thessalonians, well, it must be the same thing. It must be the same point. So a couple of things, and I, I put it on the screen so we didn't have to look it up. Um, the word for meet or meeting apentesis, simply means to meet. If you look up Strong's G. 529, you you will find that to be the case. Um, though used in an alternative alternative context during a description of the coming out to meet a dignitary, the only way to make apentesis mean that in the Thessalonian context would necessitate the invalid imputation of that foreign meaning into the text. So that's what we were just talking about in the other one. So the reason that I'm saying that is because it's not an argument. What they're saying is this word was used in context that mean this exact meaning that we want Thessalonians to be talking about. So therefore, we can read that meaning into Thessalonians and say this is definitely, and they're even admitting that it's not holding a lot of water when they say that it's hinting at it and that it's implying it. So an implication, again, we don't, build theology on what we think is an implication in Scripture. That's, that's not something that we are accustomed to doing. And the reason for that is because, again, you could come up to any, any number of meanings to certain words, certain texts. But if you, if you just look at the Greek on it, it doesn't have any secondary meaning where it means to meet and come back to the point of origin. This is The word simply means to meet. And what is what does Jesus do in that in this context? Jesus is to meet us. We are to meet him in the air. And we know from John 14 that we're to go back to the Father's house. So again, yet another instance of them not comparing scripture with scripture, because even though they're trying to make this context and 1 Thessalonians mean something specific, there's still there's still the elephant in the room, which is why are there a bunch of houses or temporary dwelling places in the Greek in heaven? that we're not going to use. Why did God do that? Jesus doesn't do things for no reason. We don't have an explanation for that other than some spiritualized notion of him making a place for people to go when he takes them to heaven as they die, which has been a historic interpretation of that verse by people who didn't like the rapture throughout church history. It's, and it's usually based upon the KJV rendering of those words because of the idea of a mansion. They're like, oh, it must be a really nice house. That's why he's making all these swelling places. right? So again, not a very good argument. I'm just putting it up there because I've been hearing it a lot. So you'll remember, probably, <laughs> when we were talking about these positions, I've made reference to a few things over, over time as we've been looking at verses about post-tribulationalism. One of the things I mentioned is that I feel that this is the easiest position to argue against. That this is the easiest opinion to undermine. And the reason I'm saying that is because a lot of their arguments are like that. A lot of them are more generalized and then they'll, they'll eventually say things like hinting and implying. Where at least the other viewpoints, they, they all try to remain pre-wrath. Right? Like at, in terms of the return of Christ for the church, for the rapture. They all try to keep the church out of the wrath of God for the most part with the exception of a few, a few differences. That being said, argument number four, and I had five primary arguments there. They say that another reason is found in Mark 13, verses 24 through 26, where it says, After that tribulation, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out his angels to gather the elect, or his elect. The order is clear. tribulation, Return of Christ, gathering of the elect, Jesus does not return secretly, but visibly. He returns after the period of tribulation, and after this return, he gathers his people to himself. For these five reasons, I think that Jesus will come back after the great tribulation. Until then, we must wait and watch for his coming. So a couple things about this really quickly. I have read probably more articles... I've forgotten more about the articles I've read than I will ever remember. I mean, there's, there's so much information. Only one person that I could find on the Internet on the pre-trib side of the aisle referred to the rapture as a secret rapture. Okay? So generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, if you see somebody mention a secret rapture, they're, they're against it. They, they don't believe in a, in a pre-tribulational rapture. So just kind of keep that in mind. That's an antagonistic term that's used to try to make a point. Just like Refor- Reformed theology, in a way, is a sly way to say they're anti-Semitic. So, um, <laughs> ouch, probably shouldn't have said that. But, but anyway, in a lot of ways, that, that ends up being the case as it pertains to the rapture, where they're just trying to undermine the point. See, it's, yeah, it's a point by exaggeration and emphasis. That's really what they're doing. So how do we answer this question? I think this is probably one of the more important things to learn as we're going through the rapture study, is this idea of the gathering of the elect, because this is the primary argument used by everybody. If you're not pre-tribulational, you find the gathering of the elect later on. Now, if you are, and yeah, we'll we'll get into that. I'm not going to steal my own thunder. So that being said, let's turn to Matthew 24, because... He's using Mark, but Matthew 24 is the one he actually spends time looking at later on in that particular article. So let's go there. Now, it says... Yeah, we'll just look at this in context, and then we'll we'll get into the... The gist of it. So in order to understand Matthew 24, we need to understand Matthew 23. We spent gobs of time on this, so we're not going to go into a lot of detail. But starting in verse 13 of Matthew 23, he goes into an extreme amount of detail as he's attacking the Pharisees. He's not being antagonistic. He's not being vindictive. Jesus is simply speaking the truth about the Pharisees. And how the God of the universe feels about people putting a hedge around his law. About us adding things on to anything he tells us. Because it's sufficient before we touch it. Um, So that being said, what does he end with at the end of Matthew 23? Well, he ends with a lament about what could have been. Specifically pertaining to the kingdom of God. Where he says... Uh, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her often I wanted to gather. Okay, we're going to look at that later. Gather her children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is super important because, first of all, these chapter divisions, not, not biblical, this is, we don't build jo- doctrine on chapter and verse divisions. We don't do that at all. So when he's talking about how I wish to gather you, that is the point that he reiterates later on in Matthew 24 when he talks about when he does gather them. So why am I saying this? Why am I bringing this up? Because when people look at Matthew 24, they always isolate it from Matthew 23. They always have to make the dividing line because why do they do that? Because Matthew 23 is where Jesus is scathingly rebuking who? The Jewish leadership. Why is that important? Because it is the Jewish leadership who were leading the sheep that is Israel. And they're the ones, I mean, Israel recognized. You look at Palm Sunday, they recognized the day and the hour at hand, but they didn't say, let's just choose this king. They said, let's look to the leadership and see what they think, right? And once they made that determination, the Jews are like, Okay, guess it's not the king. Guess we're just gonna kill him, right? So again, they that's why the term for sheep isn't this endearing term used in the Bible. Um Not at all. So that being said, as we're looking at this, we have to keep in mind the Jewish context that people try to strip from it by isolating it simply to Matthew 24. So again, what else do we know about this context? Well, I mean, I think we could come to a pretty good idea of who the elect are who are being gathered in this chapter simply from the immediate context of Matthew 23 through chapter 4. 25. But we don't really need to do that because what does it actually say? Well, it says in verse 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. There's the trumpet again, by the way, and they, the angels, will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So they say, Well, this must be the rapture. Well, when I'm seeing this, where he's saying they will gather together his elect. I take that in the same context and go back and say, well, he wanted to gather them before. He wanted this. Oh, wait, this is a prophecy. Oh, man, I keep forgetting that. There is a prophecy about him gathering together from the four winds. So, again, I'm being sarcastic about forgetting about that, but that's kind of the point that I'm trying to drive across. Before we even look at any of their arguments, any of their points, any of their positions, we have to keep in mind that's the base context for Matthew 24. It is characterized by its Jewishness. That's that's the one thing we can say about it that is absolutely generally true about this particular chapter. So we don't get what I mean by that, and the reason I say that is we don't get to define who the elect are. Later on in history, within the next 40 years of church history, immediately following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have the church being referred to as the elect. Church did not exist right now. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, he says what in Matthew 16, 18? He says he will build his church. Again, he didn't build his church between Matthew, Matthew 16 and Matthew 24. We see that he begins building them after he does what he promised them, which is empowering them with the Holy Spirit, sealing them for the day of redemption, as we see in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. So that being said, where do we go from there? Who is the elect that he could possibly be talking about? Oh man, we could think about it, we could try to come up with an answer, or we could just simply go to the Old Testament. So let's go to Exodus, beginning in chapter 19. We're actually going to spend quite a bit of time there. Now most people, when they're interpreting the book of Matthew, don't go to Exodus because they don't... Because the way that they're interpreting Scripture is they're not looking at Scripture as a whole. Part of, if you study church history, part of the reasons behind the canonicity of Scripture is because of its congruency. Because it's one message, first page to last page, speaking the same thing. No contradictions. One specific, consistent message about a holy God. And... I can take something from Exodus 19 and have it be just as relevant as something from Ephesians chapter 1. Because it's all the same message from the same God inspired at the same level of inspiration. So that being said, Exodus 19, we're actually going to start in verse 3. It says, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen What I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel." I'm going to keep going into chapter 8 where it says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words with the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So one of the things that you have to keep in mind when we're going between the New Testament and the Old Testament is that they're written in generally two different languages. So I'm not going to find eklektos in the Old Testament because it's written in Hebrew and Aramaic in some sections. So you find what's known as the equivalent word as we're moving forward. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter four. That's where we're going to be reading from next. And as we're moving, what did we just read? What was he talking about inside that verse? Well, he was talking about the Mosaic covenant. The covenant, and you notice that because it was an if-then covenant, It was a conditional covenant, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And what's more is that Moses was kind of in the mediatorial position between God and the nation of Israel, which was unique. It was quite unique because it was actually one of the first examples we have since Adam of somebody ruling between God and creation. So just kind of keep that in mind. It's, it's fairly significant. So we're going to be looking in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Later on in the chapter, starting in verse 37, it says, Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. Again, that word for chose is the word that is our parallel word between the Greek word for the same thing, for the elect, and the Hebrew. So when it's talking about how he chose them, again, he's not just like we see in the New Testament. He's not choosing ever for salvation. He's choosing for a purpose. We see that pretty consistently. So... Starting in chapter 7, beginning in verse 6, we will read, um, starting now. So, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples." But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, land of, of, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments." So we're going to pause there. Just kind of keep that in mind. That's the Old Testament, which maybe we ought to word that differently, um, description of Israel, because that's what they were doing. They were the chosen people of God. God intentionally chooses people that are not worthy because it emphasizes His holiness and His power. It shows that He is the one that gets all the glory. It's for the same reason that He saves us because of what he did and nothing that we can do to add to that. Now, in the midst of this, we know that Israel is referred to as the elect in the Old Testament. They're referred to as the chosen. That's the way the Old Testament words it. That being said, how did Israel fare being the elect of God? Well, unfortunately, we know from history that they failed their role, which was given to them by God. Um, So let's look at that very quickly. Still in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to go to chapter 28. And it says in chapter 28, starting in verse 43, it says, The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you. But you will not lend to him. He shall be the head and you will be the tail. Well, why is he telling them this? Well, it's because they failed their obligations under the Mosaic covenant. Um, later on in that chapter, starting in verse 63, going to 66, it says, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and to multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and to destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no resting place, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of the soul. So your life shall hang in doubt before you. And you will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. Pretty severe. Very severe. Um, If we can turn and bump over to Matthew chapter 12, I kind of want to make this point again. Because they made a lot of the same mistakes after Jesus came that they did beforehand. Matthew 12, starting in verse 22 says very specifically, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided itself against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? From the mouth speaks out of that which fills or fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you, but I tell you that every careless word out of the people that the people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So what is Jesus trying to convey to these people? What is he trying to show? I mean, it's a lot there. But the biggest thing is, what did he actually do? What what were the Pharisees commenting on? Well, he was doing a messianic miracle. Because what did the Pharisees have to do to cast out a demon? Well, they had to know its name. Can't know a demon's name in a demon-possessed person if they're unable to physically speak. So it was looked at as kind of an impossibility unless you were the Messiah. So when Jesus did that, that's why it was, oh, this this must have been the Messiah, the King of God's own choosing, because he did the thing you Pharisees told us only the Messiah was able to do. So they had to come up with a response to explain exactly what they were dealing with. Because, again, that entire point, they had already taught these people of, which, again, if you were an Israelite who is... Or, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go there. Um, if you were in a position where you just did everything the authorities told you for, for two years, um, no, it's, it just gets worse the more I talk about it. Because um, you see, they switch. Just like they did later on, they flip-flop. They, they recognize truth, they go to the leadership, and the leadership dissuades them. Which is part of the reason that the judgment what Jesus levied was upon the leadership representing the nation of Israel, which is also consequently why this is known as the unpardonable sin. Because ultimately, what was solidified that could not be changed at this point? The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. There's nothing they could do to change that that was going to happen. Now, there are people that disagree with this, who think that the kingdom was reoffered in the book of Acts, and they could have gotten out of it. Um, but the wording in Matthew 12 is pretty clear. So where Israel failed in their past, they're now failing in a very, I would say, a more severe way because they have the king, they have the miracles, they have all the information they need to make the right decision, they know what the right decision is, and yet they choose to not do that. So we will finish and close with John chapter 11. We're, We're pretty much, we're out of time. So if we could pop over there really quickly. We'll read verses 38 through 57. It says, So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and the stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them of the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, and this is the really critically, critical important part to know about our parallel between this in Matthew 24 and Matthew 12. It says, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the uh, high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so that the day, um, uh, so from that day, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness and to the city called Ephraim. And from there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they went, so they were seeking for Jesus, and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will come to feast at all? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. So again, spot on, Caiaphas, he is to die for the nation. But notice what they did. They recognized his influence. They knew that the signs were valid. They understood his legitimacy, yet they still chose to basically put a death warrant on him. Because they, in their limited thinking, were, they understood that they were going to have an issue with the Romans. Now, the disciples, in retrospect, thought that Jesus was going to conquer the Romans. So, again, uh, whether you were a believing Jew or an unbelieving Jew, you still had a misconception about what was going to happen through Jesus. But just keep that in mind as we're looking through this. And we'll we'll finish next week. But that is the core of how we need to really look at Matthew 24 to understand who the elect are. These are the people that are given a first swing at the Messiah. These are the people who missed. (sighs) Um, But that's the purpose of Matthew 24. We know exactly what's going to happen when they actually connect with the ball later. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, We praise you for these promises of the future where you're going to gather your people together, where you're going to um, be able to begin your kingdom. And we're we're looking forward to that. We're praying for that. I ask that you empower us to godly living so that we can be more useful to you in that kingdom, not limited by the bad decisions we made during our life here. And Lord, I ask that you help us to truly look towards you, towards the promise of your coming, and trust in you, moment by moment, believe you in what you said, in your promises, that we're not exempt for the time of the wrath of God, but more specifically, that we are to look for you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.